0: Good morning. My name is Alex um, and I'm reading the Bible for us today uh, from James chapter 4 verses uh, 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor?
1: Good morning. Morning to those online. Welcome. Can I say what a joy it is to be among you. It's lovely week after week to see the ways people serve in your church. Um, People lining up for music in the morning and in the evening. It's a big ask. The guys on the tech team. All sorts of people doing all sorts of ministry. It's a great encouragement to me. Great to be able to spend wonderful time in prayer this morning as well. Well, conflict is all around us, isn't it? It really is. Uh, We're watching the tragedy of Ukraine on our TVs. We've got ScoMo and Albo um, lining up for the next election and they're starting to get into their battle. We've got the courtroom battle over Ben Robert Smith. It's continuing. Who can forget the famous supermarket battle of 2020 over toilet paper um, that made world headlines? Aren't we proud of ourselves? And in our own ways, politely or not so politely, we each have conflicts around us, in our homes, in our workplaces, Down at the supermarket or the cafe, at church, wherever we live lives with other human beings, you find conflict. Now, what causes conflict? James tells us in verses one and two that it is because of our desires. He says there, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. What's he saying? He's saying we want things. We want things. Indeed, we have an inner battle about those things that we desire. Our desires are at war within us, in our hearts, in our minds. We know what God wants, but we also know what we want. Now, remember chapter 3 from last week? The unspiritual wisdom of the world and how it's driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition. We struggle with our personal ambitions. We don't get what we want. We start demanding. We start having quarrels, because we want what we want. And we quarrel and fight. Now, what is he talking about here? Now, my my observation of life is that our desires are often over simple things. The barista made me a cappuccino rather than a flat white. I want a flat white. I need to take it up with them. My co-worker is being deliberately nasty to me. I want an apology. My husband is not, sorry, our husband, not my husband, but our husband is not behaving the way his wife thinks he should behave. And he needs to buck up. I've got a great chance to advance my career, but I'll have to work late more often. And my wife and our children want me home more often. They're the sorts of things that we have conflict over. And when it comes to church life, from my experience, it's things like this. Our church is singing modern songs and I prefer the hymns. Or our church is singing hymns and I prefer the modern songs. I don't like the minister's sermons because he fill in the blank. I don't like the way that person dresses. It's not right for church. The children's ministry doesn't cater well enough for my child. I prefer minister Bob to minister Jim because he's so much more pastoral. Or one of the hot topics in churches today, I think men should lead or I think women should lead. And so it goes on in churches everywhere, desires that we have that lead to conflict, whether quiet or quite vocal sometimes. And of course, everyone feels very righteous about their cause. That's the stuff of life. Now, in all of these things, of course, I say my prayers choose any of those topics, but I still end up in strife and things don't seem to get sorted out the way I think they should be sorted out. Why is God not helping? Look at verses two and three. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, our prayers are too often just a secondary strategy in getting what we want. The main way to get what we want is through power somehow. And when we do ask God, James says, we, rather than seeking to pursue God's intent for the way we conduct ourselves, our hearts are full of the same selfish attitude that drives the conflict in the first place. We spend what we get on our pleasures. God does not deliver us to our selfishness and we say that the problem surely must be God. My desire is perfectly reasonable, isn't it? He must be uncaring. He must be a distant God, unworthy of seriously following, because if he was a good God, he would surely give me what I want. Well, let's take an even closer look at what's going on here. Now, it must be said that most of our desires are perfectly reasonable. Sometimes our desires are are really good, godly desires to have. Sometimes they're not. The problem is that the desire takes such a place in our hearts that we are ready to ignore God and his word to get them fulfilled. Let me say that again. This is really critical. The problem is that the desire takes such a place in our hearts that we are ready to ignore God and sin to get them fulfilled. You say, surely I'm not in God. Here I am in church. I'm a God-fearing person. And yet our desire, driven by wrong motives, starts to rule our hearts and minds and tongues. And remember what James said about our tongues in the first part of chapter three from your time with Luke, that our tongues are a world of evil. You see, we get angry because what we want is not being provided. We start demanding from people. Our hearts become dark with anger, with resentment, with malice, with anxiety, with fear, with depression, with frustration, with depression, with indignancy, or any other number of things. God hates it when our hearts are like that. We start to judge people based on our desires. That person is unreliable, uncaring, irresponsible, patriarchal, left wing, distant. God hates it when we judge people like that. And having presumed we are righteous in our judgment, which of course we most certainly are, we feel free, perfectly free and right to punish as any judge has the right to do, indeed, the duty to do. And so we dismiss one another. We refuse to listen. We avoid a person at church. We patronize them when we deal with them, or we put on a fake politeness around them. We speak unkindly to others about them. We give them the silent treatment. God hates all this. I hope you can see that none of these things has even the faintest thing to do with the purposes and will of God for our lives. None of it. However however good our original desire might be, None of this is from God. To put it bluntly, our desires have become idols for us. We are no longer worshippers of God in our behaviour. We are worshippers of our own opinions and wants. And we don't think twice about sinning to get what we believe to be right. Jesus, James, I should say, uses other language. He says in verse four, you adulterous people. Literally, the word there is just a single word. It's the word adulterers. So let me read it that way. Adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know, I recently heard the tragic story of a Christian couple in Christian ministry, sadly, where the husband found out that his wife had had an affair. Then sometime later, he found out that she had had a second affair. It destroyed their marriage. He's had enough. It's over. But James is saying in conflict, too often we are the adulterer. We are the unfaithful one who carries on an affair with the world. We're supposed to be the bride of Christ, bought by his blood so that we might belong to him. But we love our desires so passionately, our wants and ambitions, that we love them more than we love God. We're like Israel in the Old Testament, committing adultery with the gods of the nations around them. Read the prophets in the Old Testament and see the way they constantly appeal to Israel. James puts it this way. We prefer friendship with the world to serving God. How so? Well, if I can use the language from last week, from chapter three, the world's wisdom and its methods matter more to us than God's wisdom and his methods. And so the result is that we are being enemies of God in our lives. Most of us just think, surely God will forgive us and we carry on with our adultery, with our worldliness, justifying it at every turn. And if we go on like enemies, the enemies we are behaving like, we need to remember that we will be treated as an enemy on the last day. No. God is not smiling down upon us. He sees our love of the world and its ways day after day. And James says, he yearns with a holy jealousy over us as any right-minded husband would do for his bride. Look at verse five. Or do you think Scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? We're not sure exactly what Scripture he's talking about uh, talking about there. It's a bit hard to pin it down exactly in the Old Testament. but what he does say is very much the whole story of the Old Testament. Israel was constantly adulterous with the nations around about them, sometimes even physically. And they worshipped the foreign gods and God longed for them that they would return to him. And God longs after you and me in the same way But, says James, despite our behaviour, God amazingly keeps holding out yet even more grace to us. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Christian friends of that couple I mentioned a few moments ago have appealed to the husband who was so angrily angry, understandably, but they've appealed to him to reconsider ending the marriage. Could he forgive yet again? It's a tough ask. If I was in his shoes, I think I'd find it pretty tough. And in this case, his answer was no. He's not willing to budge. The marriage is over, even despite his wife's appeals that he take her back. God's jealousy over us in our spiritual adultery is very real, because we do commit adultery so often with the world. But he, amazingly, is willing to show us kindness yet again, but only to those who will humble themselves in repentance. The way to the kindness that God has for us is that we must forsake our arrogant pride and sit quietly under his word. We must repent. Now, how's your English grammar going? You're revising it each day. English grammar is a bit of a tough thing for us. We don't seem to learn grammar as much as we once did. Does anyone know what an an imperative is? What's an imperative? You must, yeah. Any other advances? A command, yes. And it can also be a request. But James in verses 7 to 10 gives a series of 10 imperatives in a way, in a row, which are commands. They're not requests, they're commands. Let's look at them in verses 7 to 10. He says, submit yourselves then to God. That's number one. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Command after command to us adulterous people. It's not a list of suggestions. It's not a list of requests. If we would see grace, this is the pathway of repentance. We must grieve over our worldliness, stop our hypocrisy, change our laughter to mourning so that we might be lifted up. In other words, we've got to forsake our friendship with the world and its ways, its methods. And come back to God and learn to tackle our personal desires with the heavenly wisdom and humility that God taught us back in chapter 3. But look at the encouragements as well in that passage. Some of these commands have promises with them. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wow, that's great news. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What an encouragement. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, there is hope. These are very precious promises indeed when we are broken in conflict. In verses 11 and 12, James turns to one particular aspect of conflict and that is slander, which is too common amongst the people of God. I'll leave you to read those verses and consider them. In conclusion, the tone of this passage is that we are being admonished by God through James. The word admonish is not a word that we use a great deal, but it means to warn or reprimand someone firmly. It would be nice if it was a gentle, sweet passage with lots of gentle, comforting words, but it's not like that. There are comforts, but there are stern commands as well. Conflict is around us constantly, and I wouldn't be surprised if you are experiencing more than one conflict in your life. It is the way of fallen, sinful humanity. This church has experienced conflict. So these are very relevant words for you. As I said last week, some of you are aware of things that happened. Others are wondering what has happened and would like to know. No matter which of those camps you may be in, you each face the same temptation to be a friend of the world and to handle your desires about this situation in the way that the world does, rather than to deal with your desires and with other people as God would have you do. How then do we take hold of what James is saying? Let me take a risk and choose one possible from that list of desires I expressed a little bit earlier. The children's ministry doesn't cater enough for my child. There you go. There's one issue. How does the world deal with something like that? Versus how does God want us to deal with it? Well, I'm speculating, but the world might raise this with the, the children's minister or maybe with the session as an issue. So far, so good. If they hear nothing and things don't change, there might be a demand. We need to hear something from you. Come on. And things don't change. There might be an ultimatum. If things aren't fixed, our family might Move. We can't stay in a church where our children's needs aren't being properly met. They might talk to other people about how difficult it is for their child, perhaps about the children's minister or the session, or complain about the fact that they're hearing nothing from the elders. They might gather a few people who seem sympathetic and start saying to the elders, everybody thinks that the children's minister is doing a bad job. If nothing is done, they decide to make their point real and leave the church. Or, rather than going through all of that pathway right back at the beginning, they might be conflict avoiders and they might just decide to quietly leave the church and go hunting for something different. All of this is an expression of friendship with the world rather than living as the bride of Christ. What could be a more God-glorifying approach? If we take our cue from chapter 3, verse 17, firstly, they resolve to depend upon God for this need for their child. And they resolve not to fall into sin. So they bring their need to God in prayer day after day. They ask God to help them to find the wisdom to handle this situation the way that would really honour him. They would follow up their prayer with a humble and gentle request to the children's minister or the session to ask if something might be possibly done. Understanding and honouring the fact that they are serving these people in session or the children's minister are serving us faithfully. They've got a lot on their plate, a heavy responsibility. If they do come back and explain why things are as they are and why it would be difficult to change, there might be room for this parent to offer to help the team with their own time and commitment to provide something. Whether that's possible or not, the godly person will be submissive and supportive and continue to be prayerful, waiting to see what might be possible. They might have further respectful conversations with the leaders to resolve the matter. But they certainly will resolve to keep the matter completely between themselves and the relevant leaders. And be careful not to stir up discontentment in anyone's heart. They'll talk to their child and to others in a way that supports the ministry of the church and helps the child accommodate themselves to the less than ideal situation and encourage them to be content and walk with them through it. They might explore creative ways to overcome whatever lack of friends there might be. They don't dream of leaving the church over a matter such as this, but they make it their aim to help their child learn godliness themselves through walking in this difficult situation. Now, that's just one example. You might see an even better way to go ahead than I've uh, tried to express. But I hope you can see something different in the character of the two approaches. One is driven by ambition, ambition for their child, and uses the methods of power, and is happy to stir up strife, discontentment, and has a demanding attitude. The other values peace among God's people very highly, takes a servant-hearted, humble attitude, and values their own personal holiness and the holiness of others around them in the church. They work cooperatively and respectfully. They show mercy to the leaders in a way that is genuine and sincere. Well, I hope that gives you a bit of an idea of what I think James is pushing at in these passages. Why don't we pray as we think about how we live out this word from God. Father in heaven, um, your word in James 4, 1 to 12 is a tough word for us because we are so much friends of the world. We struggle too often uh, with serving you, we have our desires, we have many desires which we prosecute and pursue. Please help us pursue with the wis- pursue them with the wisdom that comes from above, not from the wisdom that comes impulsively to our hearts and minds, from the world. Help us, father, to demonstrate to the people around us and to the community around us, that we really are disciples of the Lord Jesus in the way we conduct ourselves with our own desires. And help us, Father, to display the glory of the gospel to the world around us because of its wonderful differences, which are not found in the world. And we pray that perhaps through our godliness, some might inquire and become followers of Jesus themselves. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.